Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Women find it very attractive to think about different callings as callings and that it's possible to combine another calling with the calling of motherhood. But what provides peace is to put them in order. So one calling is higher than the other. So if the two were in conflict, right, you have to know which one to throw overboard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, and today I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation with Professor Catherine Ruth-Pakalik. Good morning, Catherine. Hello. Thank you for being here in Austin. And if you do not mind, would you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Yeah, it's great to be in Austin and really great to see you and enjoy some of the sun that's here. I'm visiting here at Austin from Washington, D.C., where I teach at the Catholic University of America. I teach in the business school and I teach courses in economics, courses in social research, family studies, a little bit of demography, and also some social thought. And Catherine is also a fellow of the Austin Institute, I think, since the very beginning, correct? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Don't ask me how many years it's been now. No, well, you're too young. You're too young for that to be too many years. Okay, I'll just add a couple of things. Your primary areas of research include economics of education and religion, family studies and demography, Catholic social thought, and political economy. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, you were the recipient of the Acton Institute's Novak Award, a prize given for significant contributions to the study of the relationship between religion and economic liberty. So it's not a chance that last night we ended up talking about no. liberalism and, no. uh, yeah, and the Christian faith. Okay, I would say, and I would like to have you promise that We'll have you back to talk about those things. That would be a pleasure. Yeah. There's another book that's coming. You know, I don't want to promise anything. You know, it's in the oven. We'll say <laughs> so on those things. So, yeah. You're also great at baking. So <laughs> if true. it is in the oven, I <laughs> think it it's a very, come. very, very good sign. Yeah. You also you know, can teach us a lot of things about bread. Okay. Other things that I would love to add is that, of course, you're a widely admired writer and sought after speakers on culture and gender and social science on women fertility on the work of Edith Stein, I learned. So we're very happy that you're here. And you're also the happy mother of eight children. That's right. So... <laughs> To our audience, first of all, I would like to say that the reason you're here, you're physically in Austin, is that you have accepted being a speaker for an event that at this point is probably online on our website and has already happened, co-sponsored with the University Catholic Center on Soulmates and Other Myths About the Family in America, where you discussed the puzzles, the paradoxes, and the misconceptions about the family in America. And in addition to that, that video, again, is going to be linked to this episode and you know can follow the entire and amazing lecture. But there is also an event off the record that you came here for, which was one of our seminar sessions with our students and the smaller community on time and professional careers and how we make those decisions between family and what we want to do when we grow up, assuming it's not just being mothers, only yes. being mothers. So because seminars are off the record, but because what you said was brilliant and everyone loved what you said and it's extremely interesting and it's what our audience and especially younger probably 
ladies listening to us need to hear, I would like for you to tell us something about what you told us about these stories of women around America. So let's start from what the project that you presented. Yeah, thanks. It's a project that I really love to talk about and share because the people that I met for this project are so interesting and have such great stories. So the project really was born maybe around the time that the Institute got started. I don't know. Now it's been a long time. I would say in the first idea in my head, maybe three or four years ago. And the idea was to take a creative approach to examining the question about fertility rates that are falling so fast all around the West and really indeed at this point around the world. And I decided that it would be interesting instead of to ask the question about why they're going down among some people to discover which people are not experiencing such decrease in fertility and go talk to those people that are still having surprisingly big families in this country. So I traveled around in 2018 and 19 and talked with about 50 women in 10 different states in the country and more or less asked them, why do they have such big families and what does it mean to them? So that was the beginning of the project. Yeah. This is a social science research and Mm -hmm. you apply, I mean, you're an economist, you care about numbers, you care about data. What makes this project, if you want to say, unique for its characteristics? What makes it instead, you know, the project that a social scientist should have been doing? Yeah, there's a joke. People sometimes say economists don't talk to people anymore. I mean, I don't know if they ever did, but, you know, it's become a thing that economists are the quantitative part of social science. And and increasingly, really, this has been a trend across the social sciences. It's not really unique to economics. Friends of mine in political science say the same thing is true. And even the name political science, you know, it used to be politics or political thought. And increasingly, of course, there are still people who study politics as a liberal art and they employ more the methods of the humanities. But in political science, you know, increasingly it's the spread of these quantitative methods and nothing wrong with those quantitative methods. They're really powerful and very, very interesting. But it can happen that for some topics, sometimes the tools of the quantitative researcher are not sufficient. I should also mention even in sociology, parts of, you know, ethnography and anthropology, again, these like quantitative ways of measuring things have become more, I don't know, I could say more sexy, more publishable. And I think people take comfort in the idea that if there's a number attached to a finding, it has more weight or more confidence. But of course, you can't measure everything with a number. And sometimes the numbers that we have, they come from survey research, they come from population studies, but they are born out of questions that we look to ask people. And so those surveys and those numbers ultimately are only as good as the questions that we ask. And so sometimes across these different disciplines, there's a need for a particular topic, perhaps something very important to stop and wonder, are we asking the right questions? Are we missing something we should be asking about? And on this question of fertility, I took a good long dive into a lot of the big questionnaires, these survey instruments that are used. And I thought, you know, it's interesting. We know that people who are not experiencing such a rapid decrease in fertility are extremely religious people, devout people of various faiths across the country. You know, and I noticed there's not very many questions and weak questions about religious identity in those surveys. I noticed that there were not a lot of questions about the way in which couples conceive and plan fertility together. Uh, So I saw a lot of holes there and I thought, well, maybe this is an area because there's really almost nothing more important or more central to social science than where people come from. Maybe this is an area where 
it would be a good idea, even for an economist, where my training is mostly in quantitative methods and in theories, so kind of mathematical theories, maybe there's room here to stop and to talk to a small number of people and really dig into the things that make them tick. What makes this life attractive to you? Why did you want to do this? Did you always want to do this? Why did you keep going when you started? You know, those are good questions, it seemed to me. And a lot of what I heard was very interesting. So yeah, the idea is, of course, to do something that's worthwhile in its own right, because everyone's story is interesting and worthwhile in its own right. However, I do expect that in the medium term that some of this research might help us build better survey questions for those big studies that we like to do. Because, in fact, forecasting and thinking about the ways in which populations are changing is incredibly important. There's just no aspect of our public policy or our politics which doesn't depend upon knowing what's happening with population. Yeah, absolutely, Catherine. If I may, though, it's true, you talk to these people, but I know that you had a scientific approach in how the selection happened. And when you're talking about large families, what exactly do we mean by large? Because if, you know, if the average number is one, one and a half, like what makes a family large? Yes. So for this study, and in some sense, arbitrarily, it's not a scientific choice. I picked five or more. I talked with women, all of whom were college educated, who had five or more children with their spouse. Why five? Well, it's a little harder to get to five by accident, although the method by which we looked for women for the study did include recruiting people who chose to have families this size. We looked for people who described their childbearing as purposeful. But in any case, it's very difficult to find people who accidentally have five children. But you know, you could have planned for two, but you got two boys and you wanted a girl, so you end up with three. And that wasn't the kind of large family that I was looking for, although three children would count as above average now. So I went up to five and did five or more. So, you know, I talked to women with five, six, eight, ten, and even I think maybe at the high end, 14 children. So numbers that make you countercultural for sure. Yes. A question would be here. I mean, I'm assuming large families when the spouses are the same. Yes. We looked for, in some sense, traditional nuclear families. Okay. And there being a reason also to understand if the project of children is not, maybe I'm adding in here to something that I would like to hear from you because I've heard some of the stories, but let's say that, yes, we heard from their stories that there is less concern about the self and the self, you know, autonomy. And so is that also part in your opinion, of why it's interesting to see the stories of this large family where also there is a denial of the self. It's just like being the mother, full stop, but there is a couple that is doing these together. Yeah, a research question that I had and what guided the development of the questions that I asked was kind of how women doing something so unusual, how they conceived of themselves. Because in many ways, this is a narrative fact about the arc of Growing up as a woman in this country now, you have many choices, you know, I mean, things aren't perfect for women in this country now, but certainly compared to my mother and my grandmother, you know, there are many more kinds of things that people can do. And so for many people, that narrative is a success. It's a success narrative that we've liberalized and opened more avenues for women. When I was growing up in the 1980s, there wasn't anything I didn't think I could do. 
you know, I didn't feel particularly cramped. I know other women have sometimes say that they still do, but I thought that I could do anything. I could be anything. And that was great. But certainly when I was growing up in the 1980s, it wasn't very high on the list of things that you were supposed to aspire to, to grow up and, you know, go to elite institutions and then, you know, have a lot of children. So the question I had was kind of, you know, how do women who have chosen something so different from what's normal now, how do they conceive of who they are? <laughs> Right? Because it's become, you can't even introduce yourself in a room without being asked, what do you do? <laughs> and I raise my children is not a normal answer anymore. Right? That's not doing something. What do I do refers to my profession or my professional identity in some way. And people who have, we can say, vigorous hobbies, you know, artists, creative people who work maybe in a, like a non-professional setting, they can still reach to that. But many of the women I spoke to would like to say that what it is that they do is they raise children, they make children and they nurture them and they contribute to their growth. And it's, you know, obviously for someone with, you know, eight or 10 children, it's fairly a full-time job. And it's not a full-time job in the sense that anybody who has a baby, it's a full-time job. But, you know, there's this kind of end game that many women will say, well, when my youngest child is in kindergarten. So if you have two children and you wait till your youngest child is in kindergarten, you go back to the labor force, you know, you might not be waiting more than seven years. <laughs> but for women who are going to raise five or 10 children, that starts to become a very large piece of life. So the question I was really interested in knowing is, is it possible given the changes, this changing arc that I mentioned in American society, is it possible still to forge a meaningful identity as a woman without an attachment to a full-time job? Are there some of these women, in fact, who do have a full-time job? That was surprising. Some of them do. Like you. Yeah. Well, like me, but that's in the background. But some of the women I talked to, as you know from last night, some are you know, full-time doctors or lawyers who do manage to do this, want to do this, and feel called to do this. And then others have felt very called, very deeply called to abandon professional work and to raise their children full time. And, you know, we would be blind and deaf if we didn't know that if you open the pages of any woman's magazine now, forget about women who are having extreme numbers of children, just for women with one or two, right? There's a real tension that people feel a tension. You know, how do I give the best to my child and also perform at work the way that I want to? And that tension is not resolved for many people. So I thought, well, when we look at this group, they're very extreme in some way. Do they have the same questions? Like, who am I and how can I make peace out of these things? And so I viewed these women as a kind of, if you will, because this isn't going to become normal again in the future. Mm -hmm. I viewed this group of women as a kind of boutique group of women that exhibit a very specific kind of, I don't know, expertise, if you will, an expertise in raising children or something, a specialization. They have chosen to devote much longer than normal parts of their lives to raising small children. And in some sense, to look and see, are there things we can borrow from them? Is there language that they have for helping to make peace, because really the making peace with the multiple vocations that women experience today, it applies to all of us with one child or 10, right? But I did, I think that I did hear interesting ways of making sense out of it. So yeah, as, as takeaways from, you know, what you learned from it and what these women have to teach us all, because I, yes. you know, one thing maybe to stress is also that they were not all billionaires, correct? No. Yeah. You looked at different. That's um, right. We tried as much as possible with a sample of 50 women 
to choose from a variety of means that people have. So we interviewed people that would qualify as living in the what Charles Murray calls the super zip codes, you know, people living in places like Belmont. So we talked to some people like that. But we also talked with some people who are, you know, frequently on food stamps. And then most of the women are, you know, in the middle. I mean, you know, kind of making ends meet in whatever way that they do. So a variety. So wealth is not what drives? No. Yeah, I mean, I think that many people think so, right? You like, mean first that you become you have rich, to be very then you rich can have, to have eight yeah. children or five children. Yeah, no. In fact, it was something that many of the women wanted to talk a lot about, which I didn't ask them, but it came out. Many of them wanted to insist that the lifestyle that they have chosen, which is unusual, is more accessible than people think. And they talked a lot about different kinds of things, like you don't need to buy everything new for each child. You know that the stroller lasts for five children and not just for one child. And the same goes for all the other stuff. They talked about sharing things between children, you know, obviously passing things down. But certainly for most of the women I spoke to with these large families, They were conscious of practicing a culture of thrift, which I think is interesting because I think maybe for a future podcast, not for today, Mm -hmm. we could talk about, I mean, as an economist, something I'm very interested in is the low rates of savings that we practice in this country. We are not a culture of thrift in general. Yeah. You remember I come from Europe. So yeah, yeah, we are not thrifty. We spend, spend, spend. And throw away. And throw away. Yes, that's exactly right. So I thought that was interesting that the main message from them was that this is not as expensive as it looks, but you have to make choices. You know, they're not putting eight children on a plane and flying them to Tahiti for vacation. (laughs) That's not happening. And so together with that kind of insistence that part of this lifestyle is an embracing of simple joys. And a good story for you in this respect is one of the women in my study who was most wealthy. Her Mm -hmm. husband made a lot of money. She stayed at home. She had a Ph.D., they had I think five children when I spoke with her. I mean, they live outside of a major city in a home that's, I didn't Zillow it, but it was definitely worth more than a million dollars. And she said one of the things they do once a month is they go to the nearest like low mid-level Marriott that's close to them. She said they get a room for, you know, a hundred dollars a night. The Marriott has a pool. They go and they take one room for a hundred dollars. They check in at three on a Friday. The kids swim all evening. They order pizza She said, you know, the kids take the bed. She and her husband sleep, camp out on the floor. And she said, it's like a date. And then, you know, we get up in the morning and the kids swim again. So she said, for a hundred bucks, we go on this little vacation. And the point is they could go anywhere. They've got plenty of money. But she said something like, where else can you, for a hundred bucks, take five kids and have them swim for a whole day? So I heard lots of stories like this that, you know, really kind of speak about the way in which a kind of creativity and a willingness to embrace simple things makes this lifestyle possible for the women we spoke to. Was it part of your, you know, your sample, the fact of interviewing people who were happy about these choices or it just happens that you didn't find? Because what strikes me is that I didn't read in your interviews complaints or reporting struggles about, you know, I don't know what to do. This was probably wrong. Like, so was that part of, you know, the way you selected them? We didn't select for happiness or, say, not having regrets. At the same time, you know, maybe it stands to reason that if you if we're recruiting people who are willing to be interviewed about 
intentionally having five or more children, that there might be a, a selection bias that people respond who are happy to talk about it. But nothing prevented someone from wanting to come and say it was a big mistake. We didn't screen for that. But we did, you know, sometimes explicitly and sometimes just implicitly look, give them lots of opportunities to talk about ways in which maybe they had second thoughts or, <laughs> you know, maybe regrets of some sort. But no, we didn't get any of that. In fact, one thing that struck me was how many of the women, and this will come out in the book, how many of the women talked about persisting in having children in spite of extreme difficulties. And we had certainly some women who struggle with mental health problems. And, you know, because they wanted to continue having children, they got help that they needed so that they could come back and have another baby. To summarize that, it was very edifying to see the people who we talked to, at least. These were not people who all enjoyed perfect health or, you know, perfect like life stories. They had a lot of challenges, but that they were united by loving the idea of welcoming children so much that they were willing to conquer a lot of obstacles to keep doing it. To me, it was edifying because I have not experienced, you know, very major health problems. I have small ones. And to see that, you know, people would do this anyway. I mean, the way that you look at, you know, sometimes we have stories about athletes who have a terrible cancer and they come back after they work extra hard and they have to overcome those challenges. It's very edifying, those stories. And we heard stories like that, which are very moving. People who had terrible birth stories from some babies and then came again and had another baby. And, yeah, those stories were just really interesting to hear. There wasn't a process of, well, you know, when things get tough, you know. Yeah. Catherine, do you think that it could be possible that one of the reasons we have such an hard time in accepting that life with children is actually good mm -hmm. and normal mm -hmm. uh, is because the presence in our life of our own child has been, we don't see anymore how much this relates to our human happiness, like to the yeah. interpreting human flourishing again as a isolated event. Yeah, please. Same more. I know. I think Same this word. is a great point and something that certainly just on the very surface of it, many of the women said something like, I wanted children before I had my first child, but I wasn't prepared for how much I was going to love my child. I knew it was going to be good. I mean, I thought it would be good. So what's the cultural language for sharing and those kinds of experiences? I don't think it's so common anymore. And that many people, until they have their own first child, they haven't seen that. Maybe they didn't, they weren't old enough to see their moms welcome a baby and they didn't remember a sibling being born. And then they go to college and they're never around babies. You know, college students never see babies. And then they go to graduate school or they get a job and then they're just around other professionals who don't have babies. And they just, so I think it's true. It's become very far from the kind of social script that people are in for so many years depictions of childbearing in movies and TV shows and so on are yeah, frequently not extremely mm -hmm. beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't make you want to do it. They don't make that. you do want to no. do it, exactly. And then there's all these other sort of things, which I think are subtle, but they're part of the cultural narrative. You know, for instance, something that I always think is a little bit worrisome, the language of this word to adult, right, adulting. We have developed all kinds of slightly humorous phrases for the idea that there's a kind of prolonged process to becoming an adult, right? That, you know, it's not just turning 18 anymore or leaving your parents' house. You know, it's like 
You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to qualify as a young adult. I just think I'm an adult. Yes. But, you know. No, that's right. So, you know, you see people who post on social media a picture of, you know, a bill that they paid and they say, they, oh, I'm very proud of myself. I'm being an adult. I paid a bill, you know. And you hear these sorts of expressions like, I'm not ready to have a child. I'm not an adult yet. I haven't even had a dog, you know, this kind of thing. How old were you on your first My child? first child, I was 23. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of cracks me up because in some sense, I mean, you know, yeah, it's true that having a child is, it's a tremendous responsibility, unlike anything you could possibly do before that. It's like whatever the hardest thing you ever did before, the child will be harder. But there's no way to become ready for that without doing it, right? It's the doing of it that makes you ready to do it, right? And we all kind of get this on a deep level. My son is 18 and some of his friends went to the military instead of to college. And is there ever a time you're ready for boot camp? I mean, you're not. It's terrible. You know you're going to go through it. And you're not going to sleep and you're going to become sick. But at the end, you're going to become a different version of yourself and a better version of yourself. Your friends will not recognize you. You'll be stronger and tougher and leaner and hopefully more disciplined. And if you didn't make your bed before boot camp, now you're going to be making your bed. And, you know, we talk about this. It's like an identity change. And this is exactly the kind of thing a lot of the moms talked about, right? That it's this thing. It's like a trial by fire. You have to enter into it. So going back to your question, though, you know, this, I mean, I think some social scientists are calling this emerging adulthood, you know, as if we're like butterflies that take 10 years to come out of our cocoons or whatever, you know, and it's, I mean, of course, in any individual case, it may be that people need time and they need assistance to become fully mature. And yet we've lost, I think, the sense maybe it's a part of our parenting culture, which has become quite strange. We've lost the sense that you learn to do hard things by doing hard things. Absolutely. 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 I, I just can't. Yeah, I'm just nodding all the time and, you know, the audience cannot see me, but I'm, I just know that I'm doing it. One thing that I wanted to ask you, you mentioned yesterday uh, when we were talking with the students about, you know, some of the offensive questions that women with many children have been asked, you know, mm. why did you do that? Like things like that. But based on what you're saying, I'm also starting to think that not offensive, but culturally inappropriate is maybe even my being, you know, amazed at your family and how extraordinary mm. you are mm -hmm. in being, you know, PhD and mother and professor and like teaching, I don't know, many courses this semester and being here at the same time and also being, you know, a very active woman and smiling all the time. And But maybe describing this as extraordinary is actually making it sound difficult in a way. Mm -hmm. Am I onto something or am I wrong? I think you're right. I think you are right. In one of the chapters, I think I'm Maybe I could spend more time on this. I keep saying this. The book is in progress. So I, I'm thinking right now of what I've already written. But yeah, many of the women that I talked to, they didn't think that they were particularly extraordinary. They thought they were doing what was a very ordinary thing to be doing. I heard one woman said something like, I feel like I was made to do this. It feels like, you know, so maybe, I don't know. I mean, for instance, I'm not an athlete. I'm not very athletic. But people who are athletic, they seem to have this very deep sense of, I couldn't not exercise, like what we can't not talk about. You know, that there's something that you you have to keep it suppressed. Many of the women I talked to just felt they couldn't not do this, that this is what they were made for, which was, again, for me, a very new expression, right? So, but yeah, this ordinariness that, in fact, I'm trying to think, there was a book that was very popular when I first started having children, which is, of course, 20 years ago. And I forgot the title, 
but I don't hope your listeners will laugh. It was a book for women who were learning to breastfeed their babies. And the title was something like, so that's what they're for. (laughs) (laughs) And you see, you're laughing. You should laugh. It was a very funny book. It was a good book. And it was very widely read. It's a great title. Right. I mean, of course, it's referring to something that it's so silly, but it's quite obvious that, right, for many people, they don't connect the fact that women have breasts with the fact that the mature woman in the species is meant to produce milk, which is meant to nourish her baby. And so, in fact, although it's a little bit strange at the beginning because you're not used to thinking of your breasts as an organ which can nourish an offspring, but once you kind of see it and understand how it works, it's, there's nothing could be more normal than that. It's totally normal. The sad thing is when and it happens is sometimes it doesn't work. And that causes women tremendous amount of grief. They have to grieve for it. When I had some problems and I was amazed to discover that medical doctors were not very good at helping you with this. And then I got angry and I thought, they're so concerned. I mean, you know, you can find 400,000 doctors willing to like put silicone in your breasts to make them bigger and no longer work to produce milk. That's a medical expertise. But assisting you to produce milk for your offspring like a normal biological function, it was not something that you could find medical doctors to help with. Uh, you can find midwives who help with this. You can find nurses who've made a special practice of it. But, you know, they had to fight. These nurses that do this, they had to fight for recognition and for certification to train people to do I mean, so it's just one example, but this is kind of removed from your question. But yeah, that, you know, what does it mean to be a mature member of a, a reproducing species is that it should be very normal that you produce offspring. <laughs> and maybe it would also be normal that you would do it more than once. You know, as we were mentioning, unless you see yourself as this unencumbered self that just floats somewhere in the air and doesn't really belong to anything, then maybe, I mean, it makes me guess that this wide yeah. and high level of unhappiness that we see around is basically because we're not living the life that we're meant, like they were designed. Yes, to live. designed. Yeah. Which is kind of a bad word. Now that's, you know, the idea that there's a purpose that I didn't make up. Hmm. Right. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. That we don't give it to ourselves as freely as we choose and as long as we want. And, mm-hmm. you know, because at some point, you know, bad things will happen regardless of how much freedom we have exercised. A question that comes to mind talking to you is also that, yes, yeah, true, you bring this very beautiful stories, which I really hope, you know, are listeners will read when this book will be published and, you know, we'll link to it, we'll we'll promote it, we'll send newsletter everywhere. But at the same time, you didn't abandon your job. This didn't make you say, you know, oh, it's so great to be the mother of eight that this is going to be. And this was the story that I've heard also from some of the women you've interviewed. So maybe the design is broader. You did reply to Macron and yeah. that made you famous yeah, yeah, a couple that's of years true. ago. But that's right. Uh, we can maybe mention that episode. Sure. And You can link yeah. to that if you want to. Many of those pictures are still up there. But yeah, I think for me, my mom stayed home when I was growing up. She didn't pursue a profession. She was a trained nurse and had done it a little bit before, but didn't make sense for her and for her time. So my own model of what it meant to be a good mother is that you stay home. And it's very powerful for us often what our mothers did. And for many women coming of age and trying to discern a calling, they have to make some kind of dialogue with the past or with their own childhood. This is a very normal thing. But something that helped me at some point when I was younger, because I did consider, I did consider maybe I should give it up. You know, I had my first child when I was 
just finishing the first and the second year of graduate school. And I thought, well, this is a long road to go. If I keep going, if I have another child, you know, this is getting silly, you know, maybe I should just walk away. One thing that motivated me very much at that time, I had, when my baby was three months old, I had to study for comprehensive exams, which are long, you know, and I just, I wasn't sure. I I think I ended up moving out of the house with the baby, but, but I just, I couldn't cook. I couldn't do anything else. I just had to study for a month. And I thought really hard. And of course I was with my baby and I thought, you know, for us, and I don't, I wouldn't make this normative, but for my relationship with my husband, who is also an academic, what had drawn us together and was the basis of our marriage was a conversation really about ideas and about things that matter. And it meant a lot to us to continue that conversation. Now, for us, we could have decided to continue that conversation without me trying to continue to grow professionally and to try to teach together. That was our dream was to teach together and to teach students together. And thanks be to God, we are now doing that. But at the time, what motivated me very much, I remember looking at my baby and thinking, I can view this as something I'm doing that takes me away from him. But I can also view this as becoming the person that he needs as his mom. Because this is so deeply who I am and what I love to do that if it's possible to do this in a way that doesn't injure him, and I was confident at least for that year I could keep it up, (laughs) it wasn't injuring him, I thought that it would be almost false to this is who his mom is. His mom is someone who is very strange and wants to read books forever. And that what is special about our marriage into which he was born is that his mom and his dad have this professional interest together. You know, and a professional for an academic is a funny word. For us, I think mostly it's almost just a way of life. It's not so much a profession. Yeah, it's, it's almost leisure. I mean, we right? would do yeah. it even if we weren't paid, you yeah. know. I mean, it's that's, of course, how strange people are that do this sort of thing. But I thought, I want very much for that to be the family life that my son grows up into. So I thought, well, this is going to be hard, but I'm going to try to keep going. So that was the only time I really had a kind of crisis, like maybe I should cut this out. And uh, and so I did keep going. But it did take me twice as long to finish graduate school as other women who entered at the same time. Yeah, but we are not the mother of... Yeah. So, you know, the idea is you can, just to finish the answer to your question, I think that women find it very attractive to think about different callings as callings, and that it's possible to combine another calling with the calling of motherhood. But what provides peace is to put them in order. So one calling is higher than the other. So if the two were in conflict, right, you have to know which one to throw overboard. And right, so for me, it was like, well, here's a way I can make sense out of this. This is a higher calling to be a mom. But this is also a calling. It's not, you know, a trip to the farmer's market on Saturday. It's a calling to do something and to live a certain way every day. And so that to me was helpful, that it's not two things in confliction with each other, but rather two different goods, which can complement each other, but which are in clear order in my mind. For instance, if I had a child who was disabled and needed a lot more time like active contact time, right? Because my children raised themselves in some sense in my backyard. (laughs) Like, you know, there's this leads to a whole nother conversation about the way we parent. And my husband and I try to parent in as much of a free range way as we can. But if I had a child who was more disabled and needed more contact time, I would have had to make a harder choice between these two things. So I don't want to pretend like those choices don't emerge. So the women we spoke to who did pursue professions or jobs The ones who did in the way that I do spoke about those professions as vocations, as callings, or as a purpose in addition to the other purpose. Other women, of course, had 
work or jobs that they had to do for financial reasons. And in some of those cases, they would have preferred to give them up if they could afford it. And then we had the women who didn't feel that they had a, a very strong professional calling. So a lot of variety there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I'm, I mean, I can say and I can speak to all people that you've been a professor for, you know, like that <laughs> we are grateful that you did continue because especially because, as you said, you have been a good interviewer for these women because, you know, and, and so you could attend ask the right questions that were, that were not asked. So there right. is a sense in which seeing it from the outside, of course, it means a lot that you have this background and you combine it with your expertise and with your scholarship and all the things you've studied. It's also, I mean, it just, I found it very beautiful what you said that the woman your husband fell in love with is the one that was approaching the academic career, which mm -hmm. also I think reminds us, and that's something that maybe I wanted, I said at the beginning or you discussed in your soulmate lectures. It's true, we want marriage to be something that we build and not just emotions, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we treasure the love and the romanticism and who is it that the other person has encountered as the future spouse and as the possible mother of one, five or 10, or also, you know, children might not come and right. we'll adopt them, right? Because, right? you know, that's another option. But So you don't fall in love with the project of, you know, now we're going to sit down and have 15 children. There is actually another human being in front of you. Yeah, this is a great point that I'm glad you're raising, which I don't think it will feature very big in the book for a couple of reasons. But it's something about the priority of the marriage and the bond of the marriage and the friendship between the spouses and how that gives rise to so much good for our children, almost without trying. Something very cool about that. I mean, that, and this is something that for me took, I don't know, 10 years married. It took me 10 years to start to see what was going on and reading lots of stuff that, I mean, I know that in different wisdom traditions, there are different images for this. You know, sometimes people talk about the tree and the tree shelters the children, but the tree isn't intending to shelter the children. The tree is being the tree, right? But a healthy marriage that's founded with a good friendship and that is focused on the right things, almost without trying, it gives rise to a great deal of stability and protection for children. And they need that protection so that they're safe to actually do the thing they want to do, which is they need to build themselves up. And I say it that way on purpose because the act of becoming mature, it's a process in which the person needs to participate. There needs to be agency on the part of the child. And this is the thing I think on which our culture is very confused that somehow you're a complete child and a total dependent with no agency at all. And then, you know, at some point, like you just handed the keys and you go and then you're like complete freedom. And it's a very strange thing. So when the tree is strong and healthy, you know, that it can provide a lot of stability and then children are very safe to be exploring, testing, trying, building themselves in a sense. And of course, I don't mean that they build themselves in some autonomous sense, but they, but it's the natural they have to fruit. practice making choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish people could see, well, we're happy we're not in video because yes, we, <laughs> we are happy we're not video, but I wish people could see your smile when you're talking about your marriage and your family, because that reveals a lot, especially for you know people who have had different experiences growing up. You can tell that, you know, the smile of a person doesn't lie when you're talking about these things. However, we have already gone maybe, you know, long enough for today. And I know you're very busy between, you know, your children, your husband, who's 
car is <laughs> there's somewhere there's a minor crisis at home the phone okay is, but it's, yeah so it's, we want it's, you it's to fun. take care of that Thank to be you. a good wife but as you already promised at the beginning i'm hoping that we'll have you again to we'll talk again. at least about liberalism yeah. and why it did that's not fail why it did not <laughs> fail why liberalism did not fail that's right i think there's been at least one book already so we'll have to search for another title but it's a great subject and Again, it's a story for the next time. But in fact, thinking about that problem also motivated this book. So I'll just leave that as a mystery, as a teaser. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. And see you soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.